In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Gender issues impact many families. The complexity of what to do or what not to do can be incredibly distressing. Genspect was established as an alternative to the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. They believe that there are many routes that may lead to the development of distress over an individual's gender and would like to see a wider range of treatment options. On today's podcast, we welcome a panel of experts that represent or support Genspect for a Radically Genuine conversation. Welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. A little over a decade ago, something unprecedented began to emerge in Western society. There was a surge in the number of young people being referred to gender clinics, reporting gender dysphoria, and seeking medical transition. They tended to be girls. This demographic was starkly at odds with previous decades, where almost everyone who transitioned was male, and hardly any were adolescents. Traditionally, gender dysphoria afflicted roughly 0.01% of the population, almost exclusively boys. Demonstrating preferences for the opposite sex as young as preschool age. Historically speaking, according to the DSM, the expected incident rate for gender dysphoria would be approximately 1 in 10,000 people. In the United States, over the past decade, the rates have increased significantly with some studies reporting a thousand percent increase in high school students identifying as transgender. In the UK, there's been a 4,000% increase with 75% of these being girls. The question we must ask, why this sudden rise? Something new is going on. And the parents of these kids seem to be noticing the same thing. The new transgender identity followed a heavy period of obsessive social media use. More concerning, a huge proportion of them seem to have co-occurring conditions such as autism, depression, disordered eating, or a history of self-harm. It was also occurring in, in, in friend clusters. The term coined by Dr. Lisa Littman Rapid onset gender dysphoria. They did not demonstrate the typical course of gender identity difficulties that emerged pre-adolescence. Historically, the commitment by healthcare professionals to first do no harm has produced a focus on the absence of interventions that may cause adverse outcomes. This clinical approach links to the Hippocratic Oath, which includes the promise to abstain from doing harm. Yet we are now immersed in a healthcare environment where invasive and potentially harmful inter interventions with the risk for permanent damage are widely accepted and even promoted. What has been the response of the Western medical establishment and the major mental health organizations? Well, published in the Adolescent Health Medicine and Therapeutics Journal, author Diane Ehrensoft, and I quote, 
The gender affirmative model is defined as a method of therapeutic care that includes allowing children to speak for themselves about their self-experienced gender identity and expressions and providing support for them to evolve into their authentic gender selves, no matter at what age. Interventions include social transition from one gender to another and or evolving gender non-conforming expressions and presentations, as well as later gender-affirming medical interventions, which include puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries. The model is informed by contemporary theory of gender development, with a recognition that although gender evolves over the course of a lifetime, gender identity appears to be relatively more stable and a consistent construct compared to gender expressions. Gender health, according to the published article in Adolescent Health Medicine and Therapeutics, is defined as a use opportunity to live in the gender that feels most real and or comfortable, or alternatively, a use ability to express gender with freedom from restriction, aspersion, or rejection. When considering youth's gender status, attention is paid both to gender identity and gender expressions with the understanding that a child's gender identity may communicate something very different about the child than a child's gender expressions might. And it pushes therapeutic goals that include facilitating an authentic gender self and helping alleviate gender distress. Understandably, parents, medical professionals, therapists, and concerned citizens have legitimate questions regarding this model and the potential impact on a vulnerable and developing teenager. As many know, this is a period of distinct identity development. Many clinicians are deeply concerned that these vulnerable young people are being funneled towards a singular explanation for their distress, when in reality, life is much more complex. Parents don't know who to trust and even report mental health professionals have alienated them from their children's lives. Professionals who question the affirmative model are often afraid to act outside the recommendations of major medical and psychological organizations and fear that their license could be placed at risk. A culture war has ensued where science is being distorted to fit ideological agendas and the long-term health and well-being of children may be at risk. This is a complicated subject, and today we have brought together a team of experts who are dedicated to the complexity of this issue and understanding safe and effective responses. Today's panel of experts represents or supports GenSpect, an international alliance of professionals, trans people, detransitioners, parent groups, and others who seek high-quality care for gender-related distress. They're merging as a leading organization that offers an alternative to WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. GenSpect offers a range of education, resources, and support for anyone who's been impacted by gender dysphoria, uniting 25 different organizations in 23 countries. So let's get right to it and introduce our experts today. We're going to start with Dr. Julia Mason, and we're going to move across the panel. Welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. Thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Julia Mason. 
I'm a pediatrician and have been for over 25 years. I am a uh, founding member and board member for the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, or SEGM, and I'm an advisor to GenSpect. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Joe Burgo. It's great to be here. I'm a clinical psychologist um, and a psychoanalyst. I've been practicing for too long, more than 40 years, uh, mostly in private practice. But in the last couple of years, I've gotten involved with um, the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association um, and more importantly, GenSpect, um, where I'm, along with Alistair, I'm a vice director, and I'm also the clinical lead for our Beyond Transition program, which provides services for people who are questioning their transition or who have already detransitioned. Thank you. Welcome. And our final uh, guest. My name's Alistair. Uh, my name is Alastair Gunn. I wrote a piece back when I was scared of being kicked out of academia under the pseudonym of Angus Fox, which is altogether more spellable. Uh, I fit into the category of can and other. Um, I'm a gay man. I had a, an experience of what I would strictly call dysmorphia as an adolescent. And when COVID hit, I lost all of my work, fell down the YouTube bunny hole, uh, learned about uh, this phenomenon and the growth of it. Uh, and I decided to reach out to a group of parents, specifically parents of boys. You're, you're right in saying this is mainly a female phenomenon. And I, I was interested in what this means for young men. And so I wrote a long series of articles which um, were published in Quillette uh, on the phenomenon as it pertains to young men today. And since then I met Stella O'Malley and became uh, very centrally involved in GenSpect. Welcome, I thank all three of you for joining us today. It's a diverse group with varying professional and personal experiences and I think that adds to the conversation. So I wanna start it off. Um, many people are just genuinely confused and struggling to understand the concept of gender identity and transgenderism. Scientists, politicians, highly educated people are now refusing to provide a definition of male and female. Language is changing. Uh, some people claim a man can menstruate and gender is something that is just assigned at birth. Can we just start with an explanation to our listeners to uh, to try to understand these cultural phenomenons and these shifts. What do you believe about gender? Who wants to go first? <laughs> go for it, Alistair. Yeah, dive think? in. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, the point I would make, there's a lot to be said. We, we could talk for two hours just on that question. The point I would make is you're right to say there's a lot of confusion and a huge amount of it is because well-meaning, misinformed individuals hear trans and think gay. There's been a very successful movement to bind these concepts together and they're really very different when you dig into them. There's, there's an awful lot of difference. And I believe that a lot of what we're seeing is people who they know a little, not very much. They are aware that there were many decades of discrimination faced by gay people and they don't want to repeat those mistakes. And so therefore they 
bundle all of this up into this thing, this growing entity called LGBT, and then various other letters of, to be added at your choice. And that is, to me, primarily the source of the confusion, is that people wish to be compassionate, which they should, we should. The means by which they are compassionate is misplaced because it fundamentally, it, it treats gender identity as though it's sexuality. Gender identity is a belief. Sexuality is not exactly a belief. Now you have to go into that in some detail, but ultimately if, you, if I have a gender identity or if I don't have a gender identity, this is a belief about myself. Um, and I think that a lot of the confusion you notice with suddenly all these organizations saying, you know, these very dehumanizing terms like people who menstruate and, and you, you get to the point where you think we're gonna start calling women egg layers or something, it gets very nasty in my view. It's because they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to repeat the mistake which was made before. I think, I think that's true. I think that's especially what's happened in my field of pediatrics is that there were some fired up young activist doctors who went to the older doctors that run all of the organizations and they're like, hey, hey, trans is the new civil rights movement. You need to get on the right side of history. We need to do the right thing by these kids. And this is how it's done. And all of the people who were more my age were kind of like, oh, well, I want to do the right thing. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a soft-hearted liberal. And they just went along and nobody did any fact-checking and, and nobody ever checked like the evidentiary base for all of this crazy that we're doing. Likewise, in, in my profession, um, gender identity ideology has kind of taken over and either people um, are adopting a totally affirmative, non-questioning stance towards trans identification, or they won't go near anybody who's struggling with gender issues because they're terrified of, you know, of being called out or having their license put in question, as you were saying. So you see it professionally across the board, this ideology has taken hold. So this rise in gender dysphoria is new, but body dysmorphia or body image problems or challenges with identity or difficulties in adolescence, not new. Um, what are some of the reasons why someone may present clinically as gender dysphoric and gender questioning? If we're going to open up the conversation to consider its complexity, um, what are all the, the potential reasons why someone might, may present this way? Well, let me let me jump in on that one. Um, there are a lot of reasons, and one as a clinician, the first question you want to ask when when um, a teen presents with dysphoria is, "What exactly does that mean?" We we act as if we know what that means. The gender dysphoria is this well-defined um, phenomenon that we all understand, and it's you know that's just not true. What I find with the adolescents I see is that it means sometimes it means I don't like going through puberty and what's happening to my body. Sometimes it means I feel like an outsider and like a loser. And being trans makes me feel accepted and popular. 
Sometimes it means um, I'm afraid of being same sex attracted. You know, those are just a few of the things that it can mean. Um, but, you know, I advise other clinicians to always, you know, always explore that issue. What does it actually mean? I got a question. Um, I'm going to point this to, to you, Julia. And the idea of gender dysphoria, the idea of it being persistent, um, at what point is something considered dysphoria? Would it be presenting early on in childhood? And what happens when it comes on at that age of 12 or 13 when somebody starts <clears throat> going through puberty? Right. So up until about uh, 10, 15 years ago, um, it, well, gender dysphoria was then gender identity disorder. And it was classically a kid who from the age of two or three maintained, you know, there's been a terrible mistake. I'm not actually a boy, I'm a girl. And I want to do this. And, you know, I want to wear this and, and all that kind of thing. And the traditional response by psychiatrists, child psychiatrists, was called watchful waiting because they're like, okay, well, here's a kid who is unhappy in their in their gender, but let's see what happens as they as they approach puberty. And generally, the majority of them, not all, but the majority of them, as puberty kicked in, they they realized that they were gay, and that's why they were feeling uncomfortable with with the roles you know that were assigned to them but now it is a lot more complicated there can be all the reasons like joe was just uh describing and we have a lot of young people who didn't have any signs of uh uncomfortableness with their gender when they were younger suddenly declaring at age 12 or 15 or 17 that that they have gender dysphoria, that they are trans, and they need to medically transition as soon as possible. Hmm. So with and I think it's it's worth pointing. Sorry, go on. Go ahead. That go ahead, Alistair. I was just going to say I think it's worth pointing out that so that we would classically talk about early onset being the the situation Julia described, where it's two or three, and then uh, adolescent onset. And there are some quite major differences between that. So Stella O'Malley, who's the director of, of Genspect and the founder of Genspect, has, has spoken about this with the early onset. You know, the whole town knows, right? Because if you're three and you feel like this, you, you haven't acquired all of the various social behaviors which would cause you perhaps to be a bit guarded about this. So sometimes with the adolescent onset, it can be an intensely private experience. It may be that only one person in the family knows. It may be only that the best friend knows or a few people know. So there are quite major differences between early onset and adolescent onset. And then, of course, there's a, a further experience, which is middle-aged. And, and this is almost exclusively men, uh, where it happens much later in life and it's middle-aged. That does very occasionally happen with women and I think it would be uncontroversial to say those women are all gay, um, where you get that onset, which is much later in life, let's say when you're 40 or something like that. So they have different presentations, this, this phenomenon. So really what we're all kind of driving at the same thing here, which is that this is a giant label. 
it's absolutely enormous at this point. And so you might have sort of a very intense private experience, a public experience that could be informed by trauma. It could not be informed by trauma. There's all sorts of ways in which this goes, um, which uh, in my view, I think as, as the non-clinician, I think this is a, a problem you can see elsewhere. We're using terms very, very broadly. There are lots of terms we're using about mental health which describe experiences which are really apples and oranges. Thank you. Given that you would assume that medical professionals, mental health professionals would take a more conservative approach and approach a clinical presentation with the time um, and curiosity and exploration that would be certainly required of the profession when it comes to a number of the other conditions that someone would come into therapy for. And I'm a bit confused by the contemporary theory of gender development and how it has influenced this affirmative care model. Um, And I'll quote this that with a recognition that although gender evolves over the course of a lifetime, gender identity appears to be a relatively more stable and consistent construct compared to gender expressions. So that's a bit confusing because it's actually, it's, it's assuming that if a young person would identify with a different gender or biological sex, well, then the, the assumption is that it's a consistent construct over time. It also tends to ignore the sudden rise that could be attributed to many other factors. One of them, one of the theories out there is um, the social contagion effect and the role of social media with a vulnerable population who is struggling with other mental health conditions. We've seen this at other times throughout the course of history. I remember the spike in in eating disorders with with young girls in the 1990s with exposure to very, very thin, sick models and the desire and that to and the attention to like seeking that as an ideal body presentation. So given the fact that this does appear to be complex, we're talking about a vulnerable population, that there are mental health issues that could be contributing to this. And we see that we're in a unique period of time where the emergence of the internet and social media has brought unprecedented challenges for teen mental health. Tell me about the affirmative care model, uh, why it is the recommended model for the major medical and mental health organizations, and what are alternatives? Right. Well, I first want to say that the, the person you're quoting, Diane Aronsoff, 30 years ago, she was writing articles about satanic sex abuse in preschools. So this isn't the first um, psych- psychological contagion that she signed up for. She, she definitely has like, she has, she, has a, she has a feeling that children speak the truth and whatever they say, you need to take them at their word, which as a pediatrician, I found interesting. <laughs> um, because so, like if I let my if I let my patients decide, you know, what we did, then none of them would have any vaccinations. And uh, 
they'd probably all still be in diapers now that the diapers are so awesome. So um, <laughs> the affirmative care model seems to have developed in the, the, in sort of around, I don't know, after 2010, um, the AP got involved with the HRC in 2015, 2016, and made some noises that way. And then Jason Rafferty, who was a protege of Michelle Forcier um, at Brown, is the one who went to the AAP and said, you know, this is the new civil rights movement and we need to be on the right side of history. And he wrote up the 2018 AAP statement on gender affirming care, which states as you, you know, just like you said, that the way you figure out if a kid is trans is you ask them. And if they say they're trans, then they're trans full stop. And then you proceed in this direction. Um, the AAP was the first organization to really put it down so starkly. Mm, no, the APA also did this in 2015, the American Psychological Association. It's, it's a very much, um, we can say all the medical organizations, but it's all the major organizations in the United States and Canada. Um, we do need to mention that in other countries, they're taking a, a more jaundiced look at this and they're backing away from the affirmative care model in Sweden and Finland and England. So you have to understand that Aronsoff's statement that you know gender identity appears to be stable over time, that's not based on anything. I mean, there's no science to back that up. That's just this statement that people make. And the assumption that it's true leads you to say, well, if that's, if that's accurate, then if we don't affirm their identity, we're, we're causing some sort of harm. And it, trying to explore what's behind that is equivalent to conversion therapy. So it, it's, a very, it's a very clever thing that they've done, which basically makes the, the type of work I've done for decades Verboten. You can't explore these issues. You have to affirm, otherwise you're hurting them. I'll, I'll jump in here. I, I am. I'm sorry, Alistair. Um, I would say for the parents that are listening that really don't engage with the medical community or even the psychological community that might be going into an affirmative care model, I think the idea of affirmative care or is, is unknown to them. I wasn't aware that it existed until I came in this room and we started having discussions about it with this podcast. In layman's terms, it's anybody could come in and say there's something and a doctor has to agree with them and believe that what they're saying is accurate. My, my two-year-old thinks he's a superhero right now. And I mean, this is an extreme example, but the, the idea of watchful waiting to me seems like the most reasonable approach for a lot of things. It can, it can go to... to to just affirm and then start quickly moving down a path to some type of intervention to me, why, how, how did they get there? What were they trying to solve? Because you talked about harm. Can we talk about the harm that they thought they were trying to prevent? Well, they were trying to prevent 
people, young people, from being, quote-unquote, stuck in the wrong body. But the issue is you can't, there's no such thing, it's illogical nonsense as to be stuck in the wrong body. However, it's a very, very real feeling. It's very, very sharply felt. And the danger of it is that they thought they were affirming. It's not really right to say affirmative, because if you're a young person and you're confronted with somebody, you know, in an office, in a hospital, and that hospital smell all around you, and they affirm this, it's not affirming, it's confirming. You're coming to them with a proposition and they're saying, yes, that's correct. So it's it sounds, affirmation sounds like a way of saying, I'm neutral, but I'm kind of, I'm just a really nice person and I hear you and, and gosh, my heart thumps for you. But it's not, it's a child coming to you with a proposition saying, I'm unhappy, the grass is always greener, take me over there bring me across the river to the greener grass. And what the affirmative model is doing is it is saying, yes, you're correct. And once you do that, it's such a critical developmental stage. And there are lots of points where there are critical developmental stages. That's not just one year. That could be at six, that could be at nine, that could be at 12, that could be at 15, that could be, you know, upwards and upwards, frankly, depending on the person in question. What you are doing is you are concretizing something and it takes an awfully long time to back away from that so I don't have the clinical experience that my colleagues have but I do have I as I said I had this intense period of really very uh, delusional thought I was convinced I wasn't going to grow I'm six foot five mm-hmm. there isn't a problem there there may be problems but that's not one of them so if you affirm that if you say well this is how you feel and you affirm it and you're essentially confirming it and you add on to that the sort of imprimatur of, of medical expertise and all of the respect which should rightly come with that, you are changing a child's life. So this is kind of packaged as this friendly, sort of vaguely neutral, but kind of nice thing to do. And it's not. It is, it is pulling a lever, like on a, on a set of points on a railway line, you are changing the direction potentially forever of a child. Yeah. If there's one thing I want the parents who are listening to this to come away with, it's that they need to know that this is not the sort of problem you just take to your pediatrician or you just take to the the local the local therapist because I think of it as sort of a mind virus and it's infected a lot of my colleagues. And once you've been in a room with a doctor and your kid and the doctor is completely siding with the kid and then as has been reported many times is saying to the parent you can either have a live son or a dead daughter then you know you've you've lost the plot at that point so there's so many stories from the detransitioners like well i told my mom that, you know, the reason I don't fit in and the reason I've been unhappy is because I'm actually a boy. And she said, well, that's, that's crazy, but we'll go, we'll go to CHOP. We'll go to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. You know, that's a premier organization. And then, boom, once they walked into that hospital, the die was cast. So the parents think we're going to get an expert to sort this out. But the experts are all pulling in the same direction. 
That's what was the surprise. You to know me. what Julia, yeah, what Julia said about the suicide narrative it goes to this: what's the harm they're supposedly trying to prevent? And it's always trotted out. I mean, in that recent article about Jamie Reed that um, Barry Weiss released on the Free Press, she talked about you know the way doctors will bring this up in front of the child and tell their parents just what Julia said. And the, the, the statistics behind that are really dodgy. I mean, there are some studies that show that actually transitioning increases suicidal ideation, but it's, it's presented as if 41%, I don't know what the exact figure is, of trans kids will try to kill themselves. And, and the affirmative model prevents them from doing so. It's a total lie, but you know, it sounds good. Yeah, the challenge. The challenge I'd like to. The challenge for me professionally, and I want to stay on the the medical profession, is we have to rely on our medical professionals, highly educated, tend to be people who who would reflect upon uh, data and the scientific process to inform evidence based decisions with a with a. Uh, with the idea of always keeping in mind the bigger picture to try to prevent harm. And so that having that expert aspect of, of culture, I think is really important that you trust that decisions, especially healthcare decisions are going to be made off best available evidence where I am completely shocked about what's happened over the last decade is how we have deviated from best available evidence and the safest, most effective medical treatments, not just in this area, but in mental health in general. There is a rush to pharmaceuticals. There is a, a, a rush to uh, invasive medical procedures in order to deal with the distress of living. And that's new. And it is driven in a large part by the medical establishment in Western society. What is happening within our medical settings that is influencing really bright, capable people to think in this way? Well, I think one thing that changed was about 30 years ago, uh, the law was changed, I think during the Reagan administration, allowing pharmaceutical companies to advertise direct to consumers. And that really changed the role of doctors in America uh, from being sort of the gatekeepers of deciding what medication was best for a patient. Now you have patients coming in and they say, I have X and I need Y. And uh, that, you know, that really changed things. And so direct to consumer marketing is a big reason for all of the, the push for just a million different, a million different treatments. I don't think that's the case with gender. What I'm, what I'm reminded of is I was talking to a colleague of mine, somebody I did my residency with, and this is a couple of years ago, and I'm trying to explain how crazy this all is. And our hospital where we trained, I trained at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, has a massive gender clinic, and they are doing mastectomies on 13-year-olds and probably 12-year-olds. And I'm saying, you know, this is all, this is all crazy. And she's like, you know, gender is, it's confusing. It's very complicated. I don't understand it. And so I just want to refer to the experts. And I was trying to say to her, the problem is that the experts are, are activists. The experts are all true believers in this new religion. 
and you're not going to get a differential diagnosis. You're not going to get an evaluation of your patient. All you're going to get is, yeah, not like, not, I like that, not affirmation, confirmation of whatever the kid walks in with, the clinic will confirm. Yeah, I, th I, I think that there's, it's important to say this, that within the medical industry, you have the concept of chain of trust. So let's imagine I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I kind of have to believe that a dental nurse is just going to do a good job. I don't have time to go and learn about nursing and then dentistry. I have to believe that a radio uh, radiotherapy technician is going to do a good job. I don't have time. And that runs kind of vertically in the sense of different fields. So it might be pediatrics, it might be orthopedics, it might be oncology. And then it also runs this idea of chain of trust sort of horizontally. So it's from the consultant, from the CEO, to the nurse, to the doctor, to frankly, the people who come around bringing coffee and toast and tea to people who are in recovery on a ward. Everyone has to trust one another. Now, what happened with the lobotomy scandal is very similar. So there was this period when people genuinely seemed to think you could just lobotomize those who now we would describe as people with cognitive deficit. And they just lobotomy, which is complete pseudoscience and, and pretty barbaric. And it was the case that everyone else was quite legitimately saying, well, I, I don't know. I don't have time to go and research this. I assume they know what they're doing. I assume that the the orthopedics people know what they're doing. That's not a criticism of the healthcare service. That's the only way it can run. So the phenomenon Julia is talking about of people saying that's it's complicated. Yeah, so it's cardiac health. So are all of these things. And it's legitimate for people to say, I imagine that they're looking after themselves. So when it goes wrong, when healthcare goes wrong in, in this way which is confined to one field which becomes a rogue field that that situation can be quite durative because people will be very resistant to coming in and criticizing their colleagues on the basis of knowledge gleaned you have to have some confidence to do that so the chain of trust when it works it's brilliant and it saves people's lives when it goes wrong as it has done as it did with lobotomy and as i would argue it we would argue it is doing now it's it's a, it's a large thing to overcome. It's a really um, sort of, it's a bit of a Goliath. And add to that the fact that, you know, Joe was talking about the 41%, just to put that in some context, Michael Biggs from Oxford University did a freedom of information request from the world's largest gender identity clinic, which is now being shut down. Out of 15,000 young people, children and young people, four died by suicide. So obviously, how do we reconcile that? 41% attempt suicide, four out of 15,000. I mean, one is too many. Any number is a tragedy, but there's a huge discrepancy. So you've got idea laundering, you've got poor research, you've got all sorts of problems. And it's easy for somebody who might criticize Genspec to say, ah, so these are conspiracy theorists saying that there's an evil network and everyone's in on it and everyone in healthcare is evil and probably there's things in phone masks and so on and so forth. No, we're saying that there is a very specific column within the healthcare industry that has gone wrong and that it's legitimate for people elsewhere in, health, in, in healthcare to 
expect that to be working and it's quite shocking to them when it isn't because it does work it works with every other field it works with geriatric care it works you know our healthcare system broadly works but it has gone wrong in this specific way well and i want to underscore what julia said is um the activists have gotten a seat at the table within medical organizations within my profession they're they're activists with an ideological agenda rather than researchers with a scientific background. And they have had a huge influence on the positions of these organizations. I don't think most people realize how much that's happened. They just think it's just a bunch of doctors, you know, coming to agree on what the latest research shows. It's not the case. I want to ask a question for parents, something that we get quite frequently. So when you have a, a young teen, say 14, 15, 16 years old, who is presenting as gender non-conforming and identifying as transgender and believes that the solution to their emotional pain and discomfort in their bodies is to transition medically. And so parents have these legitimate questions that, um, would suggest to them from other medical professionals that that transition does lower the risk of later mental health problems, including suicide, and that you should respect your, your child's decision to do that. And they're really scared that if they don't follow medical recommendations, that they could be doing something potentially harmful for their own teen and even, even be held liable for those outcomes. So there's a lot of fear that these parents are presenting with. What's the alternative viewpoint? What's the middle path, the reasonable response from professionals who have expertise in this area? Oh, it's really hard. It's really hard because depending on where you live, you could lose custody of your child if, uh, if you refuse to cooperate with a medical transition. I, um, I have a patient who... <laughs> The, the family moved from California to Oregon, which I think was out of the frying pan and into the fire. They literally moved <laughs> <laughs> because they thought Oregon would be better. And, um, and the girl went to the uh, public high school and learned some stuff and went to her parents and said, I am feeling suicidal. You need to take me to the emergency room because I'm suicidal right now. And the parents were alarmed and they took her to the emergency room of the local children's hospital. And once they did that, everything was out of their hands. Um, she, got, um, she got admitted and, and she, she, she later told me that th there was a moment where, and the, and the mom was you know, distraught and she was like, this is ROGD. Haven't you guys met, read Abigail Schreier? And everybody in the emergency room is just like, oh God. And, and the, the, the ER nurse closed the, you know, closed the parents out of the room and closed the door and said to the, to the 15 year old, I'm sorry, your parents are so transphobic. And then she got admitted and um, she didn't really, she wasn't really a good patient at the psych ward. She didn't really participate with the group therapy and all that. And after a few days, they're like, well, you know what, you're looking pretty stable and I think it's time to go home. And they do a they do a parent meeting the night before the discharge and they did the parent meeting and the parents used she her pronouns 
And the doctor's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're, you're calling her. You're using she? You're not using his name? Um, no, she's not. He's not going home tomorrow. He's, he's staying. And so they had to, and I mean, that's how I got involved because they, they had to, they had to say, okay, okay, we'll use the name. We'll use the pronouns. This is the doctor um, that we're going to use for follow-up. And this is the therapist that we're going to use for follow-up. And, and uh, you know, they had to make this whole appearance just to get their kid out of the psych hospital. But I guess my advice, my advice is try not to engage the oppositional reflex of your teen. And also try to seed as little ground as possible. And that's, that's a, that's a tricky dance. And it really depends on where you live, what's happened at school. I don't know. I'm going to stop talking. Cause I don't know if I have good Yeah. Advice. I, you know, I get lots of contact from parents who have, an ROGT kid, and they at basically what they want me to do is to save their child, which I can't do. But but I do work with a lot of adolescents, and I I tell them it's not my job to affirm your identity, and it's not my job to talk you out of it either. My job is to help you know yourself the best you can, so that you can make your own decisions for yourself when you're able. That's which is kind of like what therapy has always been. You know, it's like helping people to know themselves well. It's not about giving advice or confirming belief systems. And it's incredibly hard to do my job um, when at the same time, I'm conscious that somebody could report me to my license board and the entire world out there is backing up what this adolescent kid believes. And I'm just sort of this lone voice. I'm not really a recognized authority anymore in the way I was for most of my career. Um, so it's, it's really challenging. And um, I'm not, honestly, I'm not sure how effective I am. Um, I think I'm doing, I managed to avoid gender and I'm helping these kids to know themselves better. And that way I think the work is going well, but um, I'm not sure what difference I'm making in terms of gender identification when the rest of the world is backing up the kid. One of the best things you can do for your kid is um, encourage them to pursue whatever it is that interests them. Like, take that money that you thought you were going to spend on therapy and, you know, send them on a sailing camp, you know, uh, buy a horse, you know, <laughs> like whatever you can do that's like the kid is out there um, in their body, using their body, doing cool things. You know, adolescence is a time when the body is developing and the brain is developing and you really want to learn new skills. And what we don't want is to have your kid locked in their bedroom and the skills they're learning is how to argue about, about identity. We want them learning to rock climb or play an instrument or, or sing or just about anything, you know? And so if you're gonna, if you're gonna have resources to put towards it, that's where to put your resources. I mean, Geta, which uh, Joe is part of, is growing. And so I don't want to say that all therapy is useless. But at this point, like if you're just if you're just picking a therapist off of a list, the chances are 
much better than even that this therapist is not going to help you and your child. Yeah, and I would kind of add to that by saying, so I had this this weird period of of dysmorphia and I came out of it and it was, I would say, uh, to kind of, to paraphrase what Julia's saying, I looked outside of myself. There is one, there are a few factors which tie together all people which have some kind of experience with dysphoria or dysmorphia and one of them is a propensity to excessive rumination and introspection. So if clinicians are coming along and saying, you know the answer yourself, just look even further within, just, you know, shut out the world just that little bit more. If you just, if you just shut down just that one tiny bit more, you'll arrive at this sort of shard of truth within yourself that's your true gender identity. And you'll find out, am I an aromantic pansexual or am I in fact an aromantic non-binary, you know, this huge array of things they now have to choose from. And actually for me, it was, I got on stage and it turned out I could act and it turned out like, yeah, I was never going to be the sporty kid. I was never going to be this kid or that kid, but I started to see I had certain qualities I could offer the world. And if I looked out into the world, I would receive back. So coming out of what was a deeply introspective and, you know, rumination soaked period. And this is something where, you know, we work all three of us know people who are detransitioned and have had very in different contexts. I mean, whether it's therapeutic or just as friends, they all, I think, look back on the period of transgender identification and think I was just too in myself and I needed to look out into the world. So what that might mean in practical terms to simplify is take the computer away and go out, go out, go into the field, do something. Um, I think that COVID in that, in that regard, the lockdowns have not helped. I think that's been a real disaster for this generation in so many ways. And the, the introspection and the rumination is getting worse. Yeah, and I just, I just wanna point out that this notion that you have this gender identity that might be misaligned with your body, that, that encourages a dissociation from your body. So when Julia says, go out, do something physical, be active, it's really what needs to happen because we're, this ideology is encouraging kids to disassociate from them, their bodies, which your body is yourself. They're, they're, they're the same thing. Yeah, this is all great practical advice. You know, one of the things that I certainly see when I'm trying to examine this literature is who's at risk. And the increased use of screen time and, and social media use seems to correlate well with a number of mental health related problems. We as human beings desire community and connection and identification. So if you are a struggling teenager going through puberty, and you feel like you are rejected or on the outside the bounds of what, it, what is normal. It just makes sense that you're going to seek out some form of con connection and group identity. And that's the challenges of living in this digital age is we're giving uh, practical advice about getting out and experiencing the world physically, engaging relationally, connecting with others in a genuine way. While a lot of the 
a lot of this generation is kind of retreating inward into that screen. And then there's characters that are being played. And those characters are about their identification and their personal value was about getting likes and views. And so parents are actually really struggling in this world. There's economic factors too that we've kind of discussed on this podcast because parents who are working, they're two jobs, they're outside the home. It leads uh, developing teenagers to really be on their own. And how are, they, how are they engaging? Well, through their device. And so these challenges, we have to look at the complexity of all this. I know I have some of my therapists here at my center are going to be listening to this podcast as mental health professionals likely around the globe. And I know we all believe ethically and legally in informed consent, but how can you consent when you're not informed? WPATH states its guidelines are evidence-based. And we are seeing young, young children being provided puberty blockers, those who are in puberty being cross-sex hormones, surgeries that are potentially, you know, are going to create this permanent reaction to somebody who's in a vulnerable developing state. Based on everything that we know, psychologically, developmentally, medically, neurologically, how can we even believe that it is evidence-based to provide these invasive in, in interventions prior to even full brain development? Well, it's not. <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> it's just we not. We there don't. you go. Full stop. I mean, so in, in England... They, they hired Hillary Cass, a very experienced pediatrician, um, to look into this. And she, her final report isn't out. Her interim report is out. And, and she was like, yeah, I looked at the evidence, and it is just not there. It's not supporting this. And that's why the world's largest gender clinic, the Tavistock Clinic in North London, is being shut down. They're going to shuttle the patients to a series of regional uh, of regional centers and they're going to try to keep all of the kids diagnoses in mind um, because what was happening at the Tavistock and what happens at most gender clinics is as soon as gender comes up all the other problems are pushed to the side and there's there's even people there's really crazy people in the world who intimate that transition might cure autism you know it's really there's some real crazy out there but it's not evidence-based. Sweden did a system, systematic review of the evidence and decided that they weren't gonna do any puberty blockers unless it was part of a tightly controlled research project. And as far as I know, they don't have any of those research projects functioning in Sweden right now. So they've stopped giving puberty blockers to kids for gender. And Finland has done a similar thing. I, I wonder if Oh, go on, go ahead, Alistair. Well, I was going to say, I wonder if I'm going to give a, a real-world example. So I wrote, one of the stories I wrote up for Quillette, I interviewed parents and just wrote their stories up. And there was a, so you were talking about informed consent, there was a mother whose son had been struggling with a very serious eating disorder for years. And as, as you know, Roger, you can get to the point where you're taking the bathroom door off the hinges. The house is under siege. It's like a war zone. And... So she'd been going into this hospital, she'd been having these conversations. The whole model is saying to the child, you don't know what's in your best interests. You are behaving like somebody who doesn't know what's in your best interests. She went into, then the child declares that he's trans, part of which, by the way, there's a link there because 
wanting to be female can kind of in some way overlap with wanting to be smaller in some quite sinister way. And so often a, a kid who's already in mental distress over self-minimization through eating disorder might latch on to gender identity as a way of justifying that. The mother goes into the same hospital and is sat down in front of somebody who basically says, well, he knows what, sorry, she, your daughter, knows what's in her best interest. So you, they're getting completely opposite advice within the same building. One group of people saying, information is not enough to consent. You have to show that you have capacity. You have to show that you're thinking ahead. You have to show that you're thinking about your own welfare. And the other group of people saying, um, hey, God, I'd just love if I could come to the mall with you because I could pick mascara out with you. That's the communication that they're getting from the activists who are in this field, that they're being confirmed in this way. So informed consent, I, I, I think I would speak for everyone at Genspect in saying informed consent is not enough. It's never enough. And there are stories well, from medical history of people saying, I want my arm cut off. And, you know, it's not enough. Sorry, Joe, go on. Yeah, well, let's just assume for the moment that the informed consent is accurate with regard to the evidence. Let's just say, which, which it's not, but let's just say, I mean, okay, you present that to a 15-year-old and her parents, and you are told if you, if you go on this cross-sex hormone, it's likely that you will never be able to bear children. Okay. Can a 15-year-old make the decision never to be a parent? I mean, how many of us said we didn't want to have children we were, when we were that age? You know, it, it, and there, you know, to take it a bit further, there are people will point, who will point out that, you know, a, a, a young person's brain fully mature until the age of 26 in terms of being able to make rational decisions um, based on projections into the future. So, you know, is it is it even possible for the informed consent model to be used with people who aren't psychologically, you know, mature? I think I say no, it's not. And there is precedent, by the way, uh, elsewhere outside of healthcare for this number of twenty five. Certainly in British law. So, in British law, if you tragically lose both of your parents, and but you happily happen to have millionaire parents. They might set up a trust, and there's a frequently used number of 25, which is, so let's say your parents die, you're 18. No, they don't necessarily want to give you three and a half million pounds, because you might not spend it in the most sensible way. So in British law, there's very often the number 25 is used. People set up a trust and say, you have a trustee who decides how you're spending your money. So this isn't some unprecedented thing that we've just plucked, 25. There is precedent for approaching matters of decision-making among young people in a way which is not just, hey, here's the age of majority, off you go into the world, have at it. Uh, there is a different way to approach things, which is more gradual and which is more realistic. Yeah. In the United States, Obamacare set up that uh, kids can be covered under their parents' insurance until they're 26. And I think that's because kids who are 18 to 26 tend to see themselves as immortal and invulnerable, and they're unlikely to buy health insurance for themselves. And, you know, most of the time it works out, but every so often it doesn't. 
And so they're like, hey, why don't we just like leave that in the care of the parents until 26? It's an interesting contradiction. I do specialize in the treatment of eating disorders among some other conditions and uh, the evidence-based treatment for adolescent anorexia, for example, is what's called family-based treatment, FBT. And that's where the, the parents really assume all control over refeeding and eating in the home. It's identifying that the child is ill, the child is compromised. It's identifying the, the developmental vulnerability that exists and accepting that authority from an adult and from a parent in the home is the necessary approach to being able to restore their health. But then in other areas, the, the, the contradiction is that a, a child can actually make critical, longstanding healthcare decisions, despite all the evidence that suggests that this period in, in development leads to difficulties in predicting consequences, impulsivity, the inability to see themselves in, a, uh, in, in, a, in an adult world. So they're really compromised by their developmental stage. And so when we do parent training here, I'll often use the, um, the metaphor of like walking your dog. You might allow your dog to explore, learn about the world a little bit, sniff, walk around. But if they're going to dart into traffic, we have a responsibility to yank that chain and protect them. And it's like this shift is happening in, in only in this area around, around gender identity that all of a sudden kids can make these, these conditions and we're going to ignore all the other possibilities. Yeah. I think that the mother whose story I was describing was using exactly that model, the family-based model, which is very, very intense. And Roger, you should have seen her. I mean, she just looked like she'd been chased by the hands of hell because she'd been going through the, all of that difficulty for years, which is really, you know, incredibly breaks families up. As you know, it can, it can really, really harm people. And then to be told the exact opposite, it's kind of like if you if you were if you phoned nine one one and said there's a fire and, and the operator said, Yeah, that happens. You know, and then it just hung up on the just hung up on you. It's it's completely people don't know how to interpret this. Uh, all of the parents, not all, but so many of the parents that I spoke to when I was first getting into this, they all used metaphors of vehicle collision. So I feel blindsided. I felt like somebody had smacked into me from behind. You know, it's just this sense of shock to be confronted with a model which is running totally counter to all of our normal presuppositions about how to deal with adolescents. Yeah, we opened up this podcast and we were talking about really the intention, maybe potentially initially was pure. It was good. It was to, to really understand and be aware of our history where there has been sexual minorities who have been oppressed and how critical that is in developing mental health related problems due to that oppression. However, it seems like the pendulum swings, right? If, if everything is to prevent harm and creating an open society where uh, we have respect for each other. There's a collective humanity of, of love and, and compassion. Then we accept people for, for who they are and we respect their rights to live the life that they choose. However, the pendulum can swing because that exact idea can lead to somebody making potentially harmful decisions. What are we learning from the detransition community um, about what ha would have been 
probably the best way, the safest way, the most compassionate way to respond to somebody who was struggling with gender dysphoria? What I hear detransitioners say is that they wish they had been asked more questions. They wish that people had, um, you know, taken a look at the whole person and not just focused on that one aspect that came up. I mean, every story is different. Um, there are many paths into uh, gender dysphoria and there are many paths out. And right now, we're just taking everybody and trying to give them the same treatment. So <clears throat> I, I'm um, the clinical lead for a program out of GenSpect. It's called Beyond Transition. And um, we, part of what we do is we provide subsidized therapy for people who are detransitioning or questioning the tra their transition. So I meet with a lot of um, young people um, who are, um, lost, confused, and but I do hear some very, very similar stories, which is most of them felt like they were outsiders. They felt like they didn't belong. They felt for a long time that like there was something wrong with them. And there, it, it seems like transition is, is presented to them. And of course, they're ready to embrace the idea that it's, it's a cure, right? That you will, you will no longer be this this misfit outsider kid, you will no longer have all this, these problems, this self-consciousness, and you will be celebrated and accepted, which actually does happen for a while. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of like this manic cure to everything that ails you and you find your glitter family online. And none of those psychological issues that were driving the transition were explored. So what you find is that when you work with someone who's detransitioning, you've got to go back and you've got to pick up and address all those issues that should have been looked at before they ever transitioned. Um, because, you know, there was no magic cure. It didn't make it all go away. So, you know, what we need is we didn't go back to doing traditional psychotherapy and helping people get to know themselves better rather than just affirming a belief system they have. And to, you know, Julia mentioned, so the, the, the JIDS, the Tavistock has been split up and it's going to be distributed across the UK, which is a very centralized country in terms of healthcare. And there's going to be these regional centers. Part of the logic behind that seems to be to prevent another sort of medieval kingdom of gender coming about again. The, the, the Tavistock, the Jids, uh, the Tavistock behaved like a fiefdom. It behaved, and this is what we're seeing, particularly in America, that these gender clinics are behaving like fiefdoms. A lot of what detransitioners, a lot of detransitioners would have been much better served had the clinicians said, okay, so there's a number of issues here, let's step back. So there's an eating disorder issue. I'm going to connect with my colleague and we're actually going to connect we're going to have proper you know um, information sessions and talk to one another um, there's some issue here with sleep hygiene and socialization so we're going to sort you out with therapists who can specialize in that the cast review seems to be recognizing that there is a big problem with the siloing of healthcare and saying these 
gender specialists, whether they are specialists or not, need to be talking to their colleagues. And if that happens, that will resolve a lot because the ones who are, frankly, just crypto activists will be sniffed out by the rest of the healthcare profession. Or let's hope. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, I'll just say that, yeah. you know, I've, uh, I'm not very well at the moment. And I, in the last uh, seven months, I'm, I was thinking about it and I must have spoken to a hundred, best part of a hundred different people in healthcare um, from consultants and, you know, uh, nurses and all technicians and all sorts of people. And they, a lot of people ask, what do you do? And I tell them, and I don't want to get anyone sacked or cause a pile on, but I will say I haven't had anything negative. And a lot of people have said that sounds like very valuable work. That sounds like that's the direction in which we should be going. So it does feel a lot like there's growing recognition that something has gone wrong. I'm interested to know the differences in American culture versus European culture. So, for example, it seems like some European countries are starting to pump the brakes on this a little bit, while American culture seems like we're actually stepping on the gas pedal. What is the difference between those two cultures and the approach that is leading to this drastic difference? Oh, I have is... a lot to say on that. Oh, sorry, Julia, go on. Yeah, you go yeah, first. I'll just we really quick. Part of it is a fiduciary. Yeah. So if if you have a national healthcare system, it's it's the nation's dollars or well, anyway, the nation's uh, currency that is being spent for this. So there's more of a central central um, body that wants to know if this is evidence based. And in the United States, it's much more of a of a wild west, and there's the profit factor. Alistair, um, well, I realize you live in both countries, Joe, so I should probably defer to you. I think there's a cultural point here, which is that you know most of my family are American. America is based, with the exception of like let's say Native Americans and African Americans, you're all people who descend from people who said, "Screw this, I'm starting again." And so there's, I think it's harder for, for Americans in particular, and perhaps people in the new world more generally, there's less skepticism of reinvention. I think in this part of the world, so this is not really a healthcare point, this is a cultural point. I think in this part of the world, if somebody reinvents himself or herself, particularly in a country like Ireland, there's a lot of people going, oh yeah, uh-huh, what are you running from? Uh, whereas that's quite taboo in a way, I think, in America. And both of these have advantages and disadvantages, but I definitely think that's a thing. And I think it's allowed a more, there's a more sort of uh, effervescent community of people in, in Britain and in Ireland challenging this. And I think people feel socially more uh, more enabled to to push back on certain things. So uh, nobody here really takes non-binary remotely seriously. Whereas I fear that quite a few people in North America do take the idea of a non-binary identity seriously. It seems, it seems that they do. And I wonder if that's to do with this idea of reinvention. Well, you know, the, you have to understand that here in the States, the, the, the trans rights activists have been very successful 
shutting down debate. I mean, their whole approach has been no debate. You're not allowed to talk about it. And if you are, you're, you're a transphobe. I mean, that kind of sums up their whole approach. No debate, transphobe. And I was talking with a, a, a good friend of mine, a French woman who lives in Paris, about this. And she said, well, that'll never work in, in France because we love debating and arguing about everything. It just goes against everything in our culture to shut down debate. And you can see that it's, it, it started to try to happen in France and it just really didn't work. Um, there, was, there was a huge opposition to it. And so I'm not sure what it is, why, why we, I, I guess it's just the activists have been so successful in America. We're now starting to allow debate. The, you know, the New York Times is allowing different points of view to be expressed. Um, so I'm hopeful no debate will, you know, will end. I've got a question. Also, I, I think you, you, you think of yourselves as very free and easy people and, and you think of Britain as a very stuffy nation. It's the absolute opposite. We're incredibly rude and you're actually all very polite. You know, this whole have a nice day, ma'am, sir stuff. We just grunt at one another, really. Um, and I do think that that's, I think there's something in that. I think, you know, I think there are a lot of people who, who just want to be nice, and particularly in America, and we're, we're maybe just a bit over that. It's very kind of you yeah. to say. Um, I, <laughs> I've got a, Joe, I'm glad you brought up France because the idea of culture and also pride in one's own nation and language. What role do you think language, especially with masculine and feminine languages, play a role in this resistance to what could be perceived as almost America influencing their message or their ideas out to a broader world? Yeah, th this whole notion of deconstructing sex um, really won't work in a country like France because they're so into sex and the relationship between men and women and flirting and sexuality being part of relationships. They love that. So, you know, that doesn't work over there either. Um, we're really, we're really in a, in a country where they're trying to dismantle the very notion of biological sex as a reality. And it's been quite, it's been pretty successful. I mean, there seem to be many people, including professional journals who are um, getting on that bandwagon and they're, they're saying that it's actually a spectrum. And um, from now on, we need to use more inclusive and less gendered language. There was, what was it that came out this week? Somebody put out a publication that said we should, we should stop using binary sex in all sorts of disciplinary fields, that we should, we should find different language that's uh, more inclusive, like egg layers. I think that's when you said earlier, Alistair. It's, it's, awesome. I, I, it's just... It, in, in German now, it's not really taken that seriously. Germany's a funny one. Germany's complicated in, in relation to this topic, but you're now supposed to say, uh, supposedly, uh, instead of saying uh, Lehrerinnen to mean teachers, you're supposed to say Lehrer in and uh, with a gap and the gap is supposed to be the moment at which you contemplate people who are neither male nor female and this is just very very difficult to take seriously if you have a gendered language exactly. yeah exactly yeah and make a genuflect make a sign of the cross it's very very difficult to take that 
seriously when you have a gendered language. I mean, let's remember that in French, victims are all feminine. If I'm a victim of a crime, I'm une victime. So kind of having this hypervigilance around non-binary identity seems a bit silly if you're not going to address this thing first. And, and look at the absolute failure of this term Latin, however we're supposed to say, Latinx, among American Hispanics. I think I, think I read that 3% use it, and everyone else is perfectly happy with Latinos, because if you grow up speaking a language like this, and then some, frankly, rather privileged 20-something-year-old who's not from your culture comes in and tells you you need to start rewriting your grammar. Why? Why would you listen? Um, it, it's strange that these are the people who will talk quite lyrically about cultural appropriation, and yet they're, they're happy to kind of go through somebody else's grammar with a red pen, and it's not being accepted. This is the, the major, you know, I think if you speak to parents of trans-identified kids in continental Europe, the major risk factor for your child developing a transgender identity, which will turn out to be harmful to their mental health, is speaking English. It's like this travels through the English language. Wow. It's interesting here in the United States, the American Psychological Association recently published some guidelines for practice with men and boys. And many kind of viewed it as a... Um, the beginning of a war against what can be considered traditional masculinity, uh, traditional masculinity, which may encapsulate um, competitiveness, uh, stoicism. And I always questioned, you know, there's a, there can be a, a very thin line between um, political ideology and major organizations, both medically and psychologically. So, you know, for example, uh, the APA seems to be very well aligned with um, a more left uh, from center viewpoint of, of politics, which is certainly can be construed as more government control and intervention versus a, a right, more of a right wing would be focused more on kind of individualism and uh, certain degrees of, of freedom, but can obviously be distorted. American culture is very divided. And it's interesting how this issue around gender seems to fall along political lines. Um, as if the Democrat Party um, supports the, the minority and their agenda will be to support the, the minority. And then the, the Republican Party is traditionally, you know, more, um, you know, rich white, you know, for example, conservative values. When the truth of the matter is, for living in the United States, there's a big giant center, for example, where people do not necessarily fall along those, those right and left political beliefs. And so politicians seem, and the media that's associated, seem to be really driving specific agendas almost for, for votes. And so therefore, you'd have to fall on one end of the, the gender discussion or you are going to be identified as transphobic or bigoted. And so to avoid being labeled as, as such, and you want to be viewed as progressive and open, which I'm sure a lot of people would want to identify as if you care about people and you don't want to be ostracized or called names. Do you see that happening in American culture where this is falling on, on political lines and in, in some ways it's part of this greater culture war 
that exists for uh, the future of how our, our government is going to progress in this global society. 100%. It's been a tragedy, I think, really, um, because you see, for instance, uh, you know, a red state governor like DeSantis looking at the evidence base, the medical board in Florida passing sensible reforms, which get completely misinterpreted and distorted by the mainstream left media as being transphobic. And so therefore, all the good liberals, all the good progressives, you know, uh, reflexively oppose what's going on in Florida and, and support the affirmative model. And it's tragic because it, it shouldn't be a political issue. And it's meant that we have not, up until very recently, been able to have anything like a reasoned debate about you know, what the evidence says and how we should proceed. Um, I'm hopeful that that's changing, but it's really, been, it's really been very sad that it's been taken up by the political parties this way. Yeah, it's definitely what I've seen in the American Academy of Pediatrics, that um, basically all of the really conservative pediatricians left the AAP 20 years ago when uh, the AAP was in favor of gay marriage and gay couples being allowed to adopt children. That's when the American College of Pediatricians, the ACP, was formed. And it was formed as a protest against the AAP being in favor of gay couples adopting kids. And so, you know, it's sort of a, it, it's a, it's a, a ghettoization, you know? So like the people in the AAP are the liberals and, you know, generally it's the liberal medical students who choose to go into pediatrics. You, you don't do it for the money. And, uh, and so it's just a self-referential group and they're all telling each other that they're good people and they're doing the right thing. And yeah, I don't know how to break out of that. Yeah, it, it gloms on to different political issues. So it's slightly different on this side of the Atlantic, but I mean, the, the first minister of Scotland has just lost her job after eight years over this issue because the Scottish National Party which is in favor of Scottish independence, developed a policy which involved putting rapists into women's prisons. She thought herself into a corner and then she actually ended up arguing on live TV, which would be darkly funny if it weren't so serious, that there are three sexes, male, female, and rapist. Um, and now she's lost her job. And so we're in the perverse situation where men in skirts are the reason why Scotland might not be an independent country, which is the opposite of what we've been thinking for a thousand years. I speak as an ethnic Scot, um, albeit an Englishman. So in the Celtic, it's, it's interesting here, just in this archipelago, that what's happened, you know, if you look at Britain and Ireland, nearly everyone in Britain and Ireland lives in England, right? It's like nearly 60 million out of 75 million people just in that cluster of islands. And there's very much, as Stella would put it, who is, who is no, you know, she's very much a proud Irish woman. And she thinks, you know, Ireland and Scotland in particular, and to an extent Wales, are behaving like gender dysphoric teens in relation to England, the authoritarian mother. That they're almost saying, well, that's who you want to be. 
So we're going to go in the other direction. So here it's, it's gone in slightly different way. It's not exactly left, right. So you have this quite perverse situation where Celtic, sort of Celtic nationalist parties are all adopting a pretty austere and, and, and uncompromising version of gender ideology for similar reasons that you're talking about with the Democrats. Like, well, we're not them basically we're not them we're not near them we're not like that and it's only when the consequences of these policies become clear on the rare occasions that they do because the media is not necessarily reporting this in the best way that it, it, you sort of think wow this is totally perverse what why should a scottish nationalist be more in favor than a scottish unionist of a rapist being locked in a cell with a woman there's there's nothing there. there's no logic there at all it's just the way that this has parasitized our political spectrum it's been a fascinating discussion kept you three a long time and so i do want to wrap it up um, I want to look towards the future a little bit and um, what Genspect is is doing um, for the listening audience. How do we get it? How do they get information on on Genspect? And if you can just kind of summarize what the the goals of the organization are, so uh, we have a place for for families to turn for those who are experiencing gender dysphoria to turn just to, to consider the complexity of the issue. How do you um, go first? I mean the best. Yeah, the best way I would say is social media, so Twitter and Facebook and, and all your usual social medias to, f to find out what we're doing, but also genspec.org um, will be, and, and you can join, you can sign up, and you don't have to be uh, a family member, you don't have to be anyone in particular, you can just be interested and, and share our ethos, and uh, that's a great way to just be appraised of what we're doing. I guess, Joe, if you want to talk about where what's coming we can't say too much can we right um we are we are holding a conference in the near future um in which we are going to basically present a non-medicalized healthy approach to sex and gender we're going that's we're articulating a um a more expansive um mission to offer a non-medical alternative to the World Professional Association on Transgender Health. And we're going to be um, bringing together detransitioners and experts across the field, educators, um, medical personnel, researchers, psychotherapists, to, to discuss um, what, what the research shows, where we all are and how we move forward. Um, we'll have more information about that shortly when we're able to disclose it. There's lots of resources on the GenSpec website, including lots of brief guidances um, um, and advice for parents that Stella O'Malley has written, um, some of that I've been involved in. There, it's just a huge amount. There's, it's a huge um, archive of resources. I would you know, advise you to go there. Oh, and, and briefly, that there'll also be, just keep your eyes out for uh, D-Trans Awareness Day. We did a great event uh, last year where people were able to hear D-Transitioners speak in their own way about what they wanted to say. So it's really not speaking for D-Transitioners, but providing a platform and, and uh, there will be similar this year as well. Is that March 12th, Alistair? Is that when that's happening? That is March the 12th, yes. March the 12th, right. 
and it helps raise funds for Beyond Transition, which provides lots of support services for detransitioners and gender questioning kids. So, uh, you know, goes to a good cause. Great. 100%. Well, I want to thank the three of you. Uh, you're doing amazing work. It was a radically genuine conversation. There's so much to unpack here and so much to think about. Really, really um, appreciative to have professionals like yourselves to be on the front lines of this very important issue. I hope down in the future when we have some maybe more specific topics we can get into in greater depth. Today was really an overview in a lot of ways, but I'm sure if you're willing in the future, our listening audience would love to have you come back and answer questions that I know a lot of people have. Be delighted to. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.